welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. All right, Rich. Hey, welcome to the Common Bridge, everyone. Uh, Rich, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're around. I miss being in a studio with you, though. Um, but we're kind of getting used to this remote thing. How, how you doing? Actually, doing really well. And the remote work is a area that I'm very comfortable with. Cool. And uh, getting really adept with Zoom and go to meeting and conference calls, which has been kind of my life anyway. <laughs> so it's. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really pleased the way I see most citizens responding. People are being responsible in terms of the uh, stay home, stay safe, uh, being very responsible in terms of social distancing and, and being cognizant that it, with this particular pandemic, people that are going out and risking exposure aren't really taking the risk on for themselves, but they're taking that risk on on behalf of unknowing other people. Again, there's always the bell-shaped curve that people that don't understand what we're dealing with here, but uh, that's the human condition. What can you do? Yeah, what, what can you do? Hey, you know, um, I think it was yesterday, and that happened around the around the country. I was wondering if you can just reflect on this. Um, there, there has been a little backlash and kind of waiting for that to happen, and I think as it gets warmer, we might see more of it when it's more comfortable to be outside, but we saw it in Michigan, Kentucky, Ohio, I think North Carolina where there's been a little bit of, of, uh, of pushback on some of the local gubernatorial um, uh, limitations that they're putting on folks. What do you think about that uh, regionally? Do you think it's, uh, I don't want to use the word smart, but what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I think it's symptomatic of this absolutism and partisanship that we've seen. It can't be all off or all on. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's a continuum. And as I said in the recent podcast that, and I'm glad to see governors doing this, what they need to do is have a broad panel of representation that could look at where are we today based on the public health risk and what might be safe to open back up and go about it gradually And when I looked at the four phases that came out of the White House and couple that with what some of the governors are doing, because each of their situations are a little different, I was encouraged. But I was discouraged by partisans on both sides taking an absolute view that those that they oppose politically are absolutely all wrong and those that they favor are absolutely all right but there's no absolutes and i think when this all gets sorted out that we're going to learn something and i hope people can get out of this simplistic you know villain hero uh, way of thinking and understand that we're, we will have done some things well and there are some things we wish we could have done better and rich this speaks you know, to when you founded the common bridge last year you said the the right answer is rarely in one corner or the other. It's almost always somewhere in the middle of the ring, and um, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. 
So that's very insightful. It's hugely insightful now as we move into the finger pointing stage of uh, of COVID nineteen, and I think yeah, we're, and look, we're getting Brian, there. We're, we're look. Let's let's just take a minute on the uh, COVID nineteen. Sure. And broadly, it's this: there's way more unknowns today than there are knowns. And so, first of all, the origins of how this virus came to be is subject to more than one theory. The timelines are murky. How the virus affects people, that people may carry the actual virus before and after displaying symptoms. Our statistics are very incomplete. As you know, it's a national policy today that every death that involves coronavirus is considered a death due to coronavirus. Yeah, that's, that's tough, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you've got to count it some way, and there'll be time to refine it. And then also, because we can't test the entire population, we don't know exactly how many people have been exposed. So the, the rates of infection are unknown. The efficacy of treatments are not firm yet. Even there's some discussion on whether ventilators are a good idea or not. In, in recent days, uh, some promise for a, a drug uh, by Gilead Sciences that was effective against Ebola. It was effective in a hospital in Chicago, but there was no control group to say that a similarly defined patient cohort was going to be experience in a different outcome. We don't know the effect of the antibodies yet, and we don't know with all these unknowns how to get an effective vaccine. I mean, you've got to have a target that you're aiming at in order to make the vaccine work. Look, from all evidence, it looks like that the stay-at-home orders have helped flatten the curve and somewhat arrested the spread of infection. You know, less hosts available, less places for the virus to land. That seems to be working. There is, that doesn't mean it's gone, by the way. Uh, and that flattening the curve uh, means that the healthcare system has the capacity to handle the outbreaks. So we're still going to have infection. And it hopefully will stay at a level that we can treat people and treat them effectively. Mm-hmm. And there also seems to be a consensus that we're going to get another round of this at some point. And I've seen from very learned people talking about the end of 2021 as being maybe the first time that there's a a clear off-ramp and at other points, you know, between now and then. So make no mistake, we're going into a very different world than what we've experienced thus far. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about what you saw in those NASA photos. Yeah, right. Just for, just for some background, I, so I told you, Rich, a while back that I had seen some interesting photos from uh, New Delhi and around the world that the air quality had changed dramatically, and it was before even it had come over to the U.S. Well, now we're seeing a lot more of it. So I looked around online, and I saw that NASA had their air pollution index photos, their satellite photos, and really dramatic changes because essentially, as you know, the industry is generally shut down. People aren't driving around. But I look at those, and I smile. I go, well, this is cool. It shows that we can you know, maybe turn this around. 
but I know that when it starts up again, things are going to change. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, can we hang on to some of the quality uh, improvements that we've made environmentally, or is this just a, uh, just a snapshot? Well, I hope to cover that in more detail in future episodes. I've reached out already to a couple of sources looking for environmental scientists Great. that can talk about let's not go back to that same level of pollution and I also think there are some things in this country that we can do different. And bear in mind that our country, the United States of America, is in a different place than China and India and other rising economies. Explain that. Um, well, our consumption of oil and gas, our consumption of kilowatt hours are much greater per capita than those two very populous countries. Mm -hmm. and. We built our economy and we built the per capita income that our citizens enjoy on fossil fuels and on, frankly, you know, the least cost thing that perhaps was more damaging to the environment. So now if you're one of those countries and you're being told, listen, you, you can't do that, there's a somewhat, and this is oversimplifying it, but, you know, wait a minute, it's kind of our turn to get our economy up and then we'll worry about the environmental effects. So I do think we need to lend them our technology. I do think that we need to unite as a world around, you know, things like scrubbers on exhaust and mm -hmm. good ways to clean industrial waste so it doesn't end up in the water supply and the like. And then if you look at our country, I think we can do an even better job and I think that we, we are approaching the end of the personal car era anyway. Do you think COVID um, accelerates that? I think it can. And, okay. and I say it because of this. There's many people we now know that are working at home. And, you know, it's a much more productive world than sitting in a crowded highway with an internal combustion engine going the whole time. And when you, you think about cars, they're garaged more than they're used. And even though they're sitting there, they have to be insured and cleaned and maintained. And today we have, you know, apps like Uber and Lyft, and we are quickly developing driverless cars. And why wouldn't a vehicle be an on-demand service and powered by something other than an internal combustion engine? And, you know, when you think about it, too, the personal automobile, it's basically the same model as horses. I mean, horses, you had a stable for your horse, you had a garage for <laughs> yeah. your car. Yeah. Okay, You had to put feet, feet in the horse, and, and you have to uh, you put fuel in your car. I guess the cleanup behind the horse's exhaust was a little bit more immediate, <laughs> um, right. if, if you will. But they are also were sources of uh, pollution and, and disease. And you went out on a road with your horse. So I think we can do better than this as a, uh, as a human race and, um, and look at this perhaps as an opportunity to, uh, to move off yeah. of that model. I think you and I were talking last year. I thought this was fascinating, and I, I, I really have been thinking about this ever since, that the whole, you said something about the whole idea of going to the office is very, very last century because you'd gather in a place that had telephones and later on copy machines and things like that that you couldn't afford at home, so the office made sense. And now it doesn't make sense as much sense anymore because you can do it at home. And with virtual, like you had mentioned earlier in the episode, Zoom and things like that, you can have meetings face-to-face uh, -face 
just not in the same room. So it really does change the commercial real estate argument a little bit. Yeah, and and look, there's going to be less demand for air travel if people can get together instantly versus flying. I mean, there, there won't be ever a time, I think, when there'll be a substitute for the face-to-face meeting. Mm-hmm. But the let's fly into town and let's all have dinner someplace, I think we're going to pause before, before we do that. And Brian, I... I'm not sure you're aware, but I built one of the first companies, and there wasn't one doing this that I'm aware of, but there could have been. Give us some background but, on that. When well, was it? it, in, it in I such? found it uh, in 1984. I founded a uh, consulting business, and at that time, the business model was have a local office and have one in Detroit, one in Tampa, and one in Washington, and one in Scottsdale or wherever. Mm-hmm. Well. As a startup entrepreneur with no money, we weren't able to do that. So we literally built the company from the computers up, and we were the only people in the airport carrying around our technology. And we were able to hire people and say, you don't have to relocate as long as you can get to an airport and a telephone, which is what we use to communicate with the computers going over the telephone lines. Mm-hmm. And we, we built up a company with no offices and just and just being able to aggregate our specialty teams at a client site. Our teams might originate in eight different cities, but we would arrive with that cadre of expertise and backed up by a unified computer system. Very, now, very cutting hedge for 1984 and for it, now, but yeah, that's really was, cool that's 84. Yeah, and, and but again, it was brought about not by any great vision. It was a bootstrap operation and didn't have money to invest in offices. So I had to find another way around it, and it worked out pretty well. But anyway, I do think this is an opportunity for the end of an era, and we also have to really look at education. And I am very passionate about K through 12 education. Yes, you are. And and I know that. But but what do you what do you see uh, with education? What do you see COVID's major punch to education that might change when we get to the other side of this? How will education be different? Well, we've exposed even more the disparities in education, more affluent districts, more private schools have been able to pivot immediately to online learning. Mm-hmm. And in some respects, not missed a beat. And other districts, the students are now deprived of the only safe place that they know, that being the school building. And they don't have access to reliable internet or a device. And they're not getting the opportunities to learn. Now, as a policy matter, we can have a robust discussion about how to make sure that public education is resourced and accountable to make sure that they can deliver in a pandemic. Or we can talk about you know, the other end of maybe it's school choice with schools competing to say they can offer education during a pandemic. And we go to that model that says there's a voucher for everyone and pick the schools. I don't want to open that can of worms today, but, but the need is clearly there and we can't walk away from it. And imagine if this risk does go through the end of calendar 2021. Now we're talking about uh, you know, a very long period of time that these students will be away from the classroom. 
about a year and two-thirds roughly. That's a long time in a 12-year education cycle. We need to make sure that that gets addressed, but that's probably a topic for another day. Brian, you told me you had some kind of reactions or quick hitters. I I did, and so if this takes you off guard, you can, uh, you know, throw the punch over the the phone and it would be funny, but um, what what can you tell us about, uh, and we've heard some of this with healthcare lately, about the age tax. Um, I'm going to throw some buzzwords out that people aren't going to necessarily know what they are, so school us on what it is and tell us why it's important. Let's start with age tax on healthcare. All right, so when the Affordable Care Act, officially known as the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, uh, also referred to as Obamacare, was developed, uh, one of the concerns was that the premiums for uh, older people were going to be higher uh, because older people use more health care than a younger person. And so there was a clause put in the law that said you can't charge an older person more than three times what you charge a younger person for the premium. And the idea was to make sure that you didn't price the seniors out of the market. Well, what's happened in practice is that the cost for that younger, healthier person you want in the pool, uh, is that cost of that individual is too high. So there's been modifications proposed to say, three was, is probably not enough. Let's say you can't charge a older person more than five times what you charge a younger person. Or looking at it the other way, the younger person, instead of having to pay a third of what an older person pays, only pays a fifth as a way of making it affordable for the younger person to get into the pool and buy the insurance. Right now, so, now, but but how does how does the uh, a, a bubble of of an age group affect that? Like we, we've got baby boomers now for the next, hopefully, twenty years getting older. Does that impact the same model? And and are we at three to one right now? Is that about right? Three times more yeah, it's, than it's that, that's the law today. Okay, is that a younger person has to pay one third of what a person like me has to pay, and the proposal to, to get that care more affordable to the younger person is to say, you know what, they have to pay a fifth of what I pay. I see. And and that actually helps the whole system because if you have more younger, generally healthier people in, they're going to be paying in yet consuming uh, a disproportionately lower portion of the healthcare spend. I see. So it's... Again, it's used as a, as a punchline and an attack point, but that's the arithmetic behind it. All right, so I'm not going to let you you know, get too far down each one of these, so I'm going to bring another one up. Tell us about the SALT cap on income tax. Okay. The, the SALT, S-A-L-T, that is a acronym that stands for state and local taxes. And the way that things worked on your federal tax prior to the uh, tax reforms of this administration uh, was that a person could write off from their federal income tax whatever they paid for their local property taxes, sales taxes, and income taxes. And so let me give you an example. In California, the top marginal 
tax rate for income is 13.5%, right? Which is just a pretty steep rate. So let's take a person that had a million dollars of income that, you know, they're in real estate, they owned a company, they were, you know, movie producer, actor, whatever, okay? They high income, you know, Silicon Valley person. That person would have to pay $135,000 on that income to the state of California. But they could then take that 135000 and deduct it from their federal tax obligation, meaning that Washington would receive less money. And guess who subsidizes that? It's the you know working person in Macomb, Michigan. What the tax reform did, capped the state and local taxes that could be deducted at $10,000. It doesn't affect most people, but it really affects high-income people. And that's why you hear this great protest about that, uh, on the, you know, particularly from the coast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, California, that have high tax burdens in the state, but they've been able to finance part of that tax burden by having it deductible on the federal income tax. All right. And that practice has been eliminated under current tax law. I see. Okay. Well done. I, I feel schooled. I'm going to jump a little bit here with, with the stimulus bill and stimulus bills that have come out. I think there's another one being written now. There seems to be a lot of packing in of, of issues while we're getting this thing out. Let's put a bunch of stuff in it now. And it's really rank, uh, it's really rankled a lot of people like, look, get this out first. Don't put your, you know, your own issues in there. Can you speak to that at all? Like, does that group need just to get this stuff out? Or do you think it's prudent for them to take the opportunity to put their own pork into some of these bills? You know, the way I'd, I'd like to answer that is this. People that we elect are human beings. They're part of a system that incents them to do certain things, and they will do the things that we encourage them to do and that we allow them. And you, you've heard my theme ad nauseum. As long as we keep rewarding the partisan divide, mm -hmm. we will get more people in elected office who will have a well-honed skill set to attack the other party. The best of government, I think, that we've seen come out during this crisis is, you know, first of all, recognition that the income model has changed, that it's not just a person working for a wage and getting a you know, W-2 income, but there are W-2 workers that are full-time, there are gig workers, there are small business. And when I saw the response that the administration through the Treasury and the House of Representatives and the Senate came together, I thought they did a pretty good job in terms of addressing where the pain is. Yeah, I did and too. Maybe the amount wasn't it, enough. It seems to have run out of money, but I think the intent was right. I, I agree with yeah, you. Look, the, and they said at the, at the onset that that would need to be calibrated. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew the extent of the pain because it's it's a multiplier based on time. Right. If you knew this was going to be over in three weeks, you could fix the cost. If you knew it was going to be over in three months, you could fix the cost. Nobody knows. But uh, again, I, I give them, you know, high marks for liquefying the country where the pain is, which is at household level. Now, that's what I think has been the best of government. And when I think about the worst of government, 
that's stuffing unrelated items into the relief right. bill. So that's right. Okay. We're, so that's what we're talking about. Right. Okay. And that's and look that's look that's a time. I would like to say time honored, but it's <laughs> not not honorable. Right. But that's been a, been a thing to uh, attach a pet project to a bill that has to be signed, and then you know whoever the president is at the time, you know probably from the beginning of the country, say, well, the president wouldn't sign a bill to give relief to workers, and the president's you know was saying, hey, I'm not signing this bill because it's got A, B, and C in it, and you know we've had the the debate about the uh, line item veto. You know, you know, for you know, going back 30 plus years. So, you know, we were running at a pretty breakneck speed as a country, and we were going to events and concerts and the like. Now we've been, you know, cooped up. Jigsaw puzzles are selling well. People are sleeping more. Frontline workers, of course, are not enjoying that. But you know, when this is over, are people going to rush to fill? stadiums i yeah i'm gonna ask you that know. what do you think i mean like i say you're you're a, you're a season ticket holder you're a good fan are you gonna be okay just oh, watching I, I, on tv oh, or will you go back i'm going down to i'm gonna go down to little caesars <laughs> arena and watch the red wing there's a I fan mean, there's a fan I, yeah you know it's it's my happy place yeah but you know look the the other thing that i'm surprised you haven't asked about because you mentioned it before we uh, turned on the mice today but our governor here in Michigan floated the idea that let's have a special enrollment for the accountable care plan. I've spoken at length about how badly our healthcare system financing methods are relative to the job at hand. What I don't believe our governor understands is that you can't have a person that's out of work, no way to calendar when they get back to work, that watches to see if the enhanced unemployment benefits are going to be available, that maybe hasn't been able to get the unemployment flowing yet because they, they can't get on the system. Now they're thrown off, and I said this in the last podcast, 16 million Americans are going to find out what a bad idea it is to have the illogical connection between employment and health insurance. So now the governor says, well, they, let's let them roll in an accountable care plan. And the problem is that they can't afford the premiums and the deductibles are so high, six, seven, eight thousand dollars plus. It's with limited resources. It's not affordable. You, you wouldn't spend your money for that. Yeah, I don't know why they call so, it the affordable health care plan, because it's not. Some people just struggle with that. You know, again, even to his credit, Bill Clinton, when this was going to be passed, uh, they, you know, he's like shaking his head, goes, this is the craziest thing. Mm -hmm. You're taking people <laughs> in middle America, and you're going to make them pay more, and you're going to make them pay more when they actually need to get care, That's which is exactly what's play, played out. Exactly. But yeah. anyway, the, the right answer and I, if we can't get to the broad reforms that that I've talked about and other people have talked about, the short term, you could lift the requirements for Medicaid right alongside the unemployment. If you're out of work today because of COVID and you're eligible for that extra unemployment, you're also automatically eligible for Medicaid. Great idea. Okay? Great Medicaid idea. doesn't pay a lot, but it does pay some. And similarly, and I believe one of the senators floated this, but drop the age of Medicare by some measure. I believe the proposal was drop it to 50. And, you know, Medicare 
buy into Medicare right now. But you like that idea, too, because so, you said that's something you could do right now that would benefit everybody right now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it would also have the going effect of breaking this absolutely illogical connection between employment and health insurance. You, you got a lot of positive responses on that uh, with the, the podcast we did a while back on that. That You're right. It, it's silly that we do that. Yeah, it's a it's an artifact from an earlier era. And uh, my grandfather, who worked for over 40 years for Chrysler Corporation, for him to get his health insurance from Chrysler kind of made sense. But for my grandchildren, who are going to work in industries that haven't even been invented yet, much less the jobs and companies formed, it makes zero sense. Uh, And you know, even today, they say a 20-year-old is going to have seven or eight different jobs prior to exiting the workforce. So that's the pace of change. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so we've talked about a lot of things today. Is there anything that, that you'd like to mention before we roll out? Well, the only thing would be I do appreciate the feedback that folks have. If there's topics you'd like us to cover, I will try to go find an expert. And I think that we've demonstrated that we have more in common, like staying healthy and avoiding a virus by doing the right thing, washing our hands, supporting our frontline people. And if you don't need to go out, don't go out. That tells me that if we have good government and an honest news system, we can address the issues of the day and we can seize the opportunities that this great country has. If we could get there and off of the partisan poll positions, I think we've got great promise. Well said. I just want to tell the listening audience out there, thank you. There's a lot lot more of you now. We, we've really grown this in the last uh, couple of months, and um, you know, we're really glad to have you. And as we said before, go to richardhelpy.com and uh, give us some thoughts on who you might want us to talk to or what you want to what you want to hear about what you'd like to have rich uh, talk about and that would be great anyway rich we'll see you next time and thanks a lot for spending time with us again brian always great talking to you you have been listening to richard helpy's common bridge podcast recording and post-production provided by stunt three multimedia all rights are reserved by richard helpy for more information visit richardhelpy.com